Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. How did we end up defining ministry in such a way that you don't have to be like Jesus? And actually being like Jesus would be a handicap. It's interesting to me to sit with a successful leader. There's no apparent fruit of the Spirit because they're, they're about the success. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode. And one of the best parts about hosting conversations in the format of a podcast is that it gives you the chance to hear perspectives you don't usually get to hear and allows you to develop empathy for people that you wouldn't normally think about their perspective or their thoughts. And on the Preacher Boys podcast for almost 200 episodes, we have talked about ways that churches and pastors can show empathy to those that have been hurt within the church. On today's episode, I want to talk a little bit about how pastors can experience hurt within the church, and I brought in a guest named Michael McKenzie to talk us through burnout, stress, what happens when pastors lean into church as if it's a business as opposed to a spiritual place of healing and care. I just want to say right off the bat, this episode is not a defense of predatory or abusive pastors. That is not the case whatsoever, and I want to make that clear from the beginning. The language that we're talking about when we talk about pastors that are making poor decisions or they are struggling or they're making bad leadership decisions is not talking about the tier when it comes to predatory, abusive uh, situations where pastors are inserting themselves into churches to abuse. Instead, this episode wants to talk a lot about abuse. Instead, this episode is going to talk a lot about common stressors that pastors are experiencing, uh, what can lead to unhealthy leadership traits that maybe pastors aren't necessarily aware of, so they become accidentally abusive, whether it be financially manipulative a little bit or uh, just messing up schedule, taking away time from their own family that should be spent there. And so this episode is really going to be helpful to pastors, people in the ministry, and also for congregants who uh, want to better understand the mentality and 
uh, the difficulties that come along with being a pastor. So again, this episode is not at all a defense of people who have used their pulpit to spiritually manipulate and abuse on serious levels. Uh, This is something that could serve as a little bit of an audit for uh, pastors and churches to take a look at the way their ministry operates and see if they are starting to lean into kind of a incorrect way to operate their church that's going to lead to harm either to the pastor's mental health, to the congregation's mental health, or uh, to more severe leadership issues down the road. So I really hope you'll enjoy this episode with Michael McKenzie. His book, Don't Blow Up Your Ministry, is available via the link in the show notes of this episode from InterVarsity Press. I love everything that they put out. Uh, they're an amazing publisher. And the book is called Don't Blow Up Your Ministry, Diffuse the Underlying Issues That Take Pastors Down. Definitely, if you are in ministry or you're in some kind of leadership position at a church, be sure to grab a copy of this book in the show notes below this video or this audio episode if you're listening there. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the Preacher Voice podcast, and I will see you in the next episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. It's great to be here. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I was telling you right before we hit record, I want this episode, it's going to be a little bit different than our normal format, but I want this to be helpful on a lot of levels. So I want it to be helpful to, I know there's many pastors that listen um, who would be helped by this episode, by the topic you you speak so much about. Um, but I also think this is going to be a really helpful episode when it comes to empathy on the side of, you know, congregants or people who have had, you know, negative experiences within the church to understand the pressures of being a pastor, to understand kind of the uh, the stress, the mental toll. And uh, before we dive in, I just want to say right off the bat for people listening, don't mishear me. I'm not saying this is an episode about uh, maintaining abusers positions within churches. Uh, a lot of what we talk about, I think is going to be slightly less serious offenses when it comes to things like that. It's going to be more uh, you know, people that are stepping over bounds of power, people that are, you know, burning out where stress has a negative impact. So you, people that are listening, you know, my heart on the show, you know, what we've talked about in the past. So just keep that in mind. Um, we're not trying to be flipping about any of these serious topics whatsoever, but I, w- I want to talk first and foremost, a little bit about your introduction to this world, because this is a very specific topic to be writing about. Um, and I, I know you've shared your story before on some other shows and, and obviously in the book, uh, but what's been kind of your introduction to the world of, you know, burnout of, of, you know, helping pastors kind of navigate uh, the difficult world of ministry? Sure. Yeah. There's several pieces of that. You know, I grew up kind of born, raised in the church. I always say, you know, in there three times a week from conception on, you know, just, so that was just a part of my life. And, then believed I was being called into ministry after a career in business, but um, I didn't think it was going to be, you know, traditional pastor preaching ministry. So I always enjoyed the field of counseling. I was always intrigued by one, just helping people and two, just how people are wired, what really brings healing, all those kinds of things. So I got a master's in counseling, but before that, um, my brother was a church planner and I got to see firsthand just the challenge of kind of being parachuted into a community and just start a church from scratch and the toll that took on him and his family. Then I also, my senior pastor growing up, died of a heart attack at the age of 52. And now while there was some some physical family reasons for that heart attack, um, definitely, you know, ministry stress played a factor in that, you know, and I was good friends with his son 
So I got to see inside the pastor's home and what it's like to be on call 24-7, you know, that lifestyle. So that kind of gave me a heart for people in ministry. So when I got my master's in counseling, um, through various uh, doors opening, began working at first at a place called Blessing Ranch, an intensive counseling center for Christian leaders, pastors, other folks who serve full time and now have been at Marble Retreat for the past uh, 14, 15 years now, another intensive counseling center for people in full-time Christian leadership. So when you're, when you're kind of working in this, in this realm, what are some of the kind of commonalities that you're seeing among pastors? Because it is something where, you know, we're seeing pastors burn out all the time. You know, um, I, I don't want to focus so much on the extreme side of this because there are pastors that are you know, predatory or abusive. And that's a, a separate conversation what I'm about to ask about. But I'm I'm also on the phone with close friends who are pastors who are over the past couple of months are talking about leaving ministry. They're talking about uh feeling extreme depression. They don't know how to handle certain situations. Uh what are you kind of seeing, you know, lately that's kind of a common thread among pastors who are feeling severe burnout? Yeah, you know, there's several things that I have working with this population, you know, and again, qualifying it like you are the, the good pastors, so to speak, but they're still yeah. hitting a wall and struggling. One is, is they're, they're, they're by and large really well-intentioned people. They have a heart for God, a heart for people. They really want to be, if you want to call it successful, in the sense of how do I help folks through ministry? Yet they can cross this line into taking that onto themselves, onto their own shoulders. And so they begin to steal from themselves, so steal from their own sleep, steal from Mm. protecting their marriage time if they're married, steal from their own recreation. You know, we say it, and it seems like a flippant kind of thing, but the first thing to go in a pastor's life is typically fun because it's not important. It's not as important as saving souls, as doing ministry. So often, you know, a pastor in their their desire to be successful, even if it's not a worldly kind of success, just a a good, hey, I want to love God and love people, um, they'll begin stealing from themselves and they become, in a sense, less than human in in the way that they are trying to just perform and do ministry all the time. So I see them stealing sleep. I see them stealing, um, again, protective boundaries that should be around their own hearts, around their marriage time, family time. I see them not honoring their Sabbath because there's ministry to be done. And you begin, and it begins this kind of slow, um, slippery slide, especially if they're successful because they're getting rewarded for doing Mm -hmm. that. And so it's actually more dangerous in some ways if they're successful, meaning their ministry is growing because everybody's saying, you're doing a great job, you're doing wonderful and they're depleting their own hearts and souls and energy the whole time because they're not being fed. They're not letting their cup refill. And so they get so depleted, then they, they can fall into danger of medicating, of getting resentful about ministry, um, all those things, because they've taken so much from themselves, sacrificed one thing after another, that then they end up emptying themselves, not in the right way, so to speak. Yeah, you you may have answered this with what you just said, but I, I was listening to a podcast the other day and the question was posed, kind of the chicken or the egg question, you know, do organizations create harmful behavior? Do people with harmful behaviors get drawn to certain organizations? And, you know, I'm seeing what what you're seeing and not at the same scale. Like you're you're seeing people who are good people. I'm getting on the phone with 
friends who are pastors who are really, really good people. They're, they're falling apart because they're holding other people together. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but when you see people who do start borrowing from themselves, they start borrowing from family, they start doing unhelpful or harmful things either to themselves or their congregation. Do you think that's a side effect of a toxic church system? Or do you think that's something where, you know, people are going into it who, you know, haven't done the inner work they need to do before stepping into a role of pastorate? Yeah, let me answer it with kind of an example. I was doing an analysis on on a large church and on their staff that had a lot of burnout and, and turnover. And one thing that was interesting to me, you know, addiction in our country is very common. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very common thing. But yeah, when I looked at all the staff, they either were directly recovered addicts, meaning they had been addicted to alcohol or drugs in their life, or they were currently married to an addict. So they were, in a sense, traditional or codependent, Mm -hmm. or they came out of an addictive, directly addictive family system, meaning a parent was, was an addict. And so I asked the question of, wow, how come everybody on staff landed here at this church and they have this direct connection to addiction? And to oversimplify, this isn't true of, of all addicts or people who have recovered, but there definitely could be a theme, is they had no boundaries. You know, they they were being asked to come to five services. They were being asked to work seven days a week. They were being asked not to respect their own self-care and to be more concerned about, you know, somebody else's. So it was a both and, meaning that these, these folks were drawn to that. They, they were drawn to something where they could be, in a sense, all in in a really big way. You know, and they loved what they saw from the outside of this big ministry that was doing so much. And yet, so it was, it was a both end. The ministry was, was sucking them dry. I mean, it was taking everything they could give. And then at some point, they just would hit a wall, you know, okay. and be like, I got nothing left. And so then the, the, the ministry was not going to change because it was successful. So then they would just keep replacing staff. You know, that was, yeah. that was the way they did it. And they would find new staff who were excited to work there because they're, they are successful. They have a model that looks good on the outside because of the numbers and, and the appearance of impact, you know, so it, it really is, can be a both and thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of its own chasing addiction, you know, <laughs> seeing the numbers, yeah. seeing the big, the big mm-hmm. days, seeing, seeing the the success. How, how does that work on the individual level? Because, you know, you see a lot of times with mega churches specifically or churches, you, well, I say that, but there's mega church mentality in the smallest of churches, uh, but it you see, be. you see pastors kind of saying like, I know I can take this to the next level. They have that CEO mentality, you know, um, how does that affect an individual's mindset, because I have a theory and I'm curious to know if you think this is on track or off, but a lot of times, you know, we look at kind of terms like abuse or controlling as like this monolithic, like they're evil across the board. And I think there's a lot of accidentally abusive pastors uh, Mm -hmm. who, you know, are just trying to like you said, be successful, whatever that means. Um, you know, how does that quest for success affect an individual's kind of morality uh, over the years of ministry? Yeah, I, I talk about this in the book a little bit, that it's been interesting to me, and sometimes um, you may even say disturbing, hmm. that I've worked with some very successful pastors. And, you know, we have an eight-day intensive. They come in for eight days, spend a lot of hours with them and, and their spouse if married. And, um, that I have 
seen, at least in my own observation, that I cannot see any of the fruit of the spirit that are readily apparent in them. Love, joy, yeah. peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Yet they're very successful at ministry and the fruit of the spirit would actually get in the way of doing good ministry. Mm. So how did we end up defining ministry in such a way that you don't have to be like Jesus and actually being like Jesus would be a handicap to doing ministry. You need to be assertive. You need to be golden tongued. You need to be motivational. You need to take on the next big vision challenge. You know, lots of things that you don't see in the life of Christ. So it's interesting to me to sit with a successful leader. There's no apparent fruit of the spirit because they're they're about the success and we have not totally but a lot of the church church has been defined as what's successful meaning what fills the seats you know but we all know that you know Kanye West can fill the seats it doesn't mean he's you know a good pastor person you know so you can not be a good person and fill the seats you know and so it's interesting and then a common, you know, thing I write on in the book is about uh, perfectionism, and so perfectionism can, is held up as an ideal in our culture and mm-hmm. especially in the church world. Yet that perfectionism can be abusive in the context of when you're a leader and you're pushing your staff for that perfect worship service, and then typically it turns around as judgment criticism when it's not when it doesn't meet that mark, you know, and so so the 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 pastor who looks like he's creating this great worship experience can really be hard on staff because through his perfectionism, yet everybody is affirming his perfectionism. Look what you've done, look what you've created here. So, you know, I really think that that kind of chasing that definition of success can one, it can lead you to not have to be Christ-like. You know, you you can be, and two, often the path is perfectionism, drivenness, all those kinds of things. And that can leak out on everybody around you. You know, we work with a lot of associates who just get chewed up, you know, in the process of that one very driven, you know, leader. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting how you said being like Jesus is like a handicap to successful ministry as defined by many churches and pastors. And that's funny because successful ministry would be being like Jesus. So it's a, it's an interesting kind of dichotomy mm-hmm. there. And, you know, you're, you're dealing in the, uh, for lack of a better word, the, the ER kind of dealing with when the, this stuff happens or, or when it's about to happen. Um, where should we be treating this? Like, what is the root cause of these things? And, you know, I, I think so much about church planners, you know, when, people are one being selected to be church planners and being sent out, you know, what red flags or what, what training needs to be done at that level to prevent the major burnout or the massive, you know, scandal that's going to come five, six, seven, 10 years down the road. Yeah. There's a lot of aspects that, you know, I could go into and with that question, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think, I, I think that we, Even as churches, as seminaries, if you go to pastor conferences, I see it all over the place. Again, I'm biased because of my what I do, but we still sell the success model and we buy into it. And I think we largely just are so susceptible to that, that I think going back to 
what truly is, and you said a minute ago, what is truly successful in educating our pastors to be that being like Christ is what you aim for, and that is not on your shoulders to, to grow the church or grow the ministry, so to speak. It's, it's taking care of first thing first, and first things is, is to be like Christ, is to, to love God and, and spend time in that relationship, you know, with God and let other things flow out of that, not the vice versa. So, you know, even in seminaries, Bible colleges, a lot is taught about how to be successful. They use different terms often. And if you go to, you know, pastor conferences, which I do, because, you know, that's where we advertise our services, yet the most, you know, sought after workshop speaker books are those about how to be successful, how to, how to grow your church. And, and I think we, we need to start, you know, with a, a redefining of success right from an early point in, you know, training pastors to be. And then I think once you get into ministry, it's so, we're so um, susceptible to that. You need some, you know, good people around you to, to say, hey, you know, you're beginning to sell out for success here. Mm. You know, it, you know, you, you are cutting corners in different ways, whatever that may be. There's multiple ways pastors can do that. But you are, are not staying focused on the main thing just to get more people into the seats on, on a Sunday morning. Yeah. So I think that accountability community of, of people who are really walking together, trying to aim for living the Christ-like life, not to have a successful organization. As, as you know, I'm sure you've heard this lots, you know, on this show, any, any organization is susceptible to power, control, mm-hmm. self-protection, especially if it is being successful, you know, and, and we can all just gravitate towards that. And we're like, oh, we have such a great pastor. Well, why? Well, look around, look, look at how many people are showing up. Well, does that really mean you have a great pastor? You know, are they Christ-like? Do they deepen your walk in Christ? Are you becoming more Christ-like in a sense? Um, so I think, you know, just a redefining by the church again and not letting society, um, which is leaked into, of course, church culture, define what success is. I think also the pastor having somebody, you know, really some people walking closely with them to say, hey, you're you're beginning to to buy into a success model instead of living Christ-likeness out in your ministry. There are a couple yeah. of big points. Yeah, I've, I've heard you mention the danger of the isolation, you know, and, and that was something reading Chuck DeGroat's book, you know, when narcissism comes to church, he talks about that, you know, the danger of, you know, repelling any kind of deep interaction with other people. And you know, it, it can be difficult, you know, definitely I've heard you mentioned, you know, it's difficult for pastors to, you know, they can't be picking favorites in the congregation and, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure from, oh, you went to so-and-so's house for dinner, or you are really friendly with that person. Why not with my family when there is, they're, they're human beings. So there's natural connections between people. Um, I, I want to kind of talk to the flip side of that, because I do think it is important. And I think uh, from conversation on the show, people would understand pastors can't be in isolation. There need to be people around them speaking into them, you know, uh, someone they can talk to about things that are, they're struggling with mental health, things like that. But I want to talk about the flip side of this, because a lot of times when you look at situations where there's a massive scandal, so now pivoting into, you know, situations that are, that are hitting headlines, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of people that were close to them that did know, 
that were yes men that you know knew there was a problem but didn't say anything uh how do pastors surround themselves with healthy community that's going to challenge them not not someone that's just going to be a jerk to them and push back on everything they say but someone that's going to say you know hey you went too far uh this is a big danger sign we need to take a step back here uh, how do they find and cultivate a a good healthy community of friendship yeah, you know, that that definitely is a challenge. And, and a couple of thoughts that come to my mind, you know, one is having some folks who don't have a horse in the race. Often the people who are supposed to hold the pastor accountable are very invested in that ministry being successful. And, and some of the situations, you know, we're probably both rolling through in our head that have happened recently. You're like, why didn't anybody say something that was going on yeah. there? Well, the people who saw it also had a responsibility to protect that ministry. And sometimes we're making their own income from that ministry. And so it's really difficult. So, you know, when the people who are supposed to hold the pastor accountable are too closely connected to that ministry. So I think it's it's great to have somebody outside of that. The danger of that, of course, is then they don't see what's going on as yeah. much. But I think it's good to have some people, and I, and I definitely have worked with pastors who said, hey, my seminary buddy, he was in another state in another church. He's the one who called me and said, you know, you know, he called me on the carpet, said, I've heard you recently. I've seen you, whatever. There's red flags. I'm concerned about you. And nobody in his own church was saying that, or at least he wasn't hearing. Two, I think it's so tempting when you become a leader, you know, of any organization, even a Christian organization is to find people who fall in line with the mission or the vision. And, and so they're going to be necessarily, yes, yes, people. You know, I think it's been written on, and um, oh, I forget the book now, Preventing Ministry Failure, I believe it is. The difference between allies and confidants, and allies are people who are in the war with you, but they're more concerned about the war than they are about you. And confidants are people who care about you and your health and wellness not so much about the war. Right. And what a lot of pastors do is get allies. They are like, we want to win this war. We want to fulfill this mission and vision because we believe that's going to be a successful one for this church. Let me surround myself with people who can fit the, the different parts that I need instead of having folks who are like, hey, we're concerned about you as a pastor, as a person. Are you well? You know, um, that's the most important thing to us. So you have to, you know, supposedly Abraham Lincoln chose some people who who were his enemies, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think a pastor needs to say, hey, this person is dead against my mission, yet they're good to have here. Now, a lot of pastors don't do that because they see that as being you're not you're not with me, you're against me mm -hmm. instead of being, hey, this person has some legitimate concerns about the building program or the next big thing we're going to do and do they have an important voice? So I think, you know, pastor themselves has to say, I need to get some people in the room who are those ones that see it from a different perspective and not just buy into that, that mission or vision to be successful because you will surround yourself with just the folks who are wanting it to be accomplished. Right. Do, do you think that there is any, do you think there's any blame? I mentioned obviously like just church culture, which I think, you know, it's been written about extensively. It seems maybe more, maybe because I'm reading more over the last two years, it's been written on quite a bit is, is where 
American evangelicalism or where church culture is, do you think the level of like financial bloat in a lot of ministries where it is six, seven, eight campuses or a multi-million dollar building for, you know, not that many people, you know, do you think that is kind of a root cause of some of these problems? Because when you see scandals erupt and you see these churches switch into PR mode, morally it's appalling, but from a business perspective of a, of a organization that has a mortgage on a seven, eight, nine, $10 million building, they're kind of in a position where they have to do that. You know, it's, it's morally wrong to do it, but business-wise they have to do that. Uh, do you think that's kind of a, a root cause of some of these problems that we're seeing when it comes to people banding together, going into that defensive posture? Yeah, I think that ties in these two themes that we're talking about together is, you know, when I sit with pastors and they tell me about their elder board, their leader board, it tends to be all business people. Why do they have business people there? You know, instead of other folks who are, have a heart for God, a heart for ministry, are are deep into spiritual formation, walking with Jesus. Why do they have all business leaders? Because they see we're running a business and I need what the skill set they bring, but they may not bring that other skill set that says, hey, but your soul's not in the right place. Your heart's not in the right place. Now, sometimes you can get both in, but sometimes not. And so I think, you know, then when when a ministry starts becoming successful, especially, you know, financial and numbers, yeah, that it's just so tempting for that self-protection to happen. We don't want anything to destroy it. You know, and I, and I think, you know, my, one of my biggest surprises working with Christian leaders is not so much the things that Christian leaders do because they're, they're humans, they're sinful, they're broken. I can see where the pride comes in. I can see where the, the selfishness, whatever else. But I've been surprised by the degree to which sometimes they're protected for the name of the ministry. You know, that has surprised mm-hmm. me because nobody wants to see the ministry go down, you know, and they justify it. But in justifying it, they betray sometimes the exact ethics that they're there for in the first place, you know, supposedly to help the the weak and the wounded and the disenfranchised. And now they're doing exactly that and how they run the business. And if I see anything from the life of Christ is he never used the ends to justify the means, you know, there was there. He didn't do that. And yet you'll see ministries doing that even betraying their own, so, so to speak ethic, you know, in doing that. Yeah. I had a, I had a guest on the show who was a victim of sexual abuse within the church and uh, you know, the youth pastor and her were both sent away um, and the youth pastor was given a going away party who had committed the abuse uh, was praised, was brought to the pulpit and she was just kind of kicked out quietly to the curb. And when I asked why that was, she said, they they weighed the value of who brought the most to the ministry and the person that brought more was the one that got to get the positive send off and the money and the gifts and i brought nothing as a 15 or 16 year old girl so it was easier to discard me and when you see churches who claim christian ethics do that and circle the wagons in that way it does race to to question what's the point of the church here in this instance 
in the first place? <laughs> Why are you yeah. here? And and I've seen that many times over the past past couple months. You know, uh, pastors when faced with sexual abuse scandals or you know any other form of scandal, but that's typically what what you see come out. Um, the statements made are prepared by lawyers who are, you know, many times not part of the same even religious affiliation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they won't step into ways to care for the survivor in a way because it can open them up to other legal issues. And it's it just seems strange that there's more emphasis on what is safe versus what is right. You know, what, what what's going to avoid a lawsuit versus what's going to avoid someone being permanently hurt and traumatized for the rest of their life. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's just hard for me to, to wrap my head around how we got there. Like how do, you know, because when you read the teaching of, of Jesus, you don't see that, <laughs> like you no. do not see this, um, this step into this kind of corporate mm-hmm. cold approach to working with other people. And um, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is it's such a fascinating thing to see organizations starting so well-intentioned and then just quickly, uh, like sometimes in the course of a year, dipping into this awful, awful place. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, I try to get out of my book is, or what are some of the deepest motivations that drive us as humans and, and how do those go awry in ministry? And definitely, we all have a deep desire to be adequate, to be loved, lovable, to be respected, mm-hmm. you know, to be valued. And sometimes we hang the hat for that on success. And if we're being told we're important, we, we there seems to be reinforcement of what we bring to others. And so one of the things I've noticed, you know, with, with Christian leaders and then those they surround themselves with is it's not always so much about the money or the success. It's kind of the flip side. They, they all hate failure. They don't like failure. And so then if there is a scandal comes out, you know, that has happened and is true, they take it as failure to acknowledge it, admit it, we made a mistake, we blew it, we should have protected that person, we should have done this, and they don't like the failure of it, when really it's it's a redefining of what is success and failure, when success as a Christian should be, did we love well, you know, Mm -hmm. did we love that person well, then we can say we were successful in the right way. But it's, it's interesting to me, a lot of the protection I see going on is none of us want to admit there was a failure on our parts. And that comes back to this deep human need, again, to feel adequate, secure, valuable. And now we've gotten this, I am a part of this successful church. I mean, you, you see people who are part of something successful, there, there, there's a pride in that, you know, and yeah. there is, and it's not always a good thing. Sometimes it's fine that, hey, you know, we this has really been blessed or, or whatever, yeah, but there's also a danger in it as well. And, and so I think that whole issue of failure is a big component in what drives a lot of these leadership and a lot of these institutions to protect themselves when, yeah. when there is abuse happening. I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment, but first I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible, and that sponsor is Factor. Factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. 
So no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad. And it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. And these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to factormeals.com slash PreacherBoys50 and use code PreacherBoys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PreacherBoys50 at Factormeals.com slash PreacherBoys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor and now check out the rest of this episode. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Right. Well, it it all comes, like you said, to redefining those terms, you know, and it's, it's so important. I think again, abuse, abuse happens everywhere. Uh, scandals happen everywhere. Bad things happen where there's a room of two people, something bad's going to happen eventually. <laughs> and, you know, I think too many people do look at uh, a case of abuse happening in a church. It's only a matter of time. If you're around for 50 years, either you're, either you haven't heard about it or, you know, something is going to come out and it's going to happen. It's it's just a matter of time when you have that many people in a building each and every week. And that doesn't make you a failure. It's how you respond to that happening. And that's where I think that needs to change for leaders is, you know, okay, something bad happened. How are we going to approach it? And I think where the failure happens is when you have someone going up, reading a lawyer prepared statement that is five sentences long that discredits the victim and protects the organization. That's where the scales tip to failure. Um, I've never seen a church where an abuse happens and gone, oh, they're a failure. I can't believe that happened in a group of 500 people. Um, you know, what it is, is sitting there waiting and saying, what's the next step? How are they going to approach this kind of, kind of moving forward? And, and how are they going to actually care or not care for, for the person that was hurt in this situation? Um, yeah, for sure. You know, I was, and I, I actually wrote on this in an article recently. Um, 
I was my my son. We were at this community event. He got face painted as a zombie, and he's he's nine years old. And he loved it. He wanted to go to school the next day with his zombie face. And I was like, I don't know if that's against school policy to go with face paint on. So I'm reading the handbook, you know, for his school, elementary school. And I got to the section of, of no bully policy. And then they went through all the steps they do to try to be sure there's no, a no bullying happens mm. after school from the top down education. This is our ethic. If we have a difference of, of opinion or conflict, this is how we deal with it. Here's how safe reporting can happen. Here's how the person who was being bullied will get supported. And I was like, dang, we could learn a lot as a church from <laughs> this, you know, just a better redefining what success is. This school is saying success for us, a big part of it, yes, is of course education, is that we we don't have any kid that comes here that feel ever experiences being bullied, but we know it's going to happen. But here's all the safeguards and here's how we're going to continue to educate. Here's how we're going to reward those who handle it in a different way. Here's how we're going to be there for the victim. Here's, you know, we're going to wear t-shirts this day to remind everybody, mm-hmm. you know, that we're, we're having non-bullying. And I'm just like, wow, you know, we got some catching up to do. We don't do near that good as a church typically in stopping bullying from happening, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about kind of educating people and, and redefining these terms, redefining the way that we think about so many of these issues. Um, I want to I want to dip a little bit practical here, and for people who are listening, who may be pastors or they're part of leadership teams at their respective churches, what are some resources where? Because because I I have to imagine there's some people who, again, not talking predatory, you know, rampant abusive behavior. I'm talking people that may not even know, they may not even be aware that they're pushing their staff too hard. They may not be aware they're on the edge of a burnout or or into something, you know. Uh, that could be potentially very harmful to their church. Uh, what are some resources where people can maybe audit their church or audit their uh, own leadership to determine uh, if there are some of these red flags or warning signs? Uh, obviously, your book is one, but I'm I'm curious if there's uh, some other practical tools they could check out that would that would help in that area. Wow, I don't know anything. You know, I'm sure they're out there. I don't know anything specifically about that. I mean, I think you know it's it's great to ask people, you know, just like trying to find a good doctor or a good mechanic or whatever, you know, you ask others, what has been your experience here? Mm-hmm. You know, you're because you were asking specifically about auditing. Is this a, a good church, a good pastor, a safe church? Well, Is that what I, you were asking? I was thinking more specifically for a leadership team. So if there's a, a pastoral oh. team that wants to say, hey, do we have any red flags we should be aware of? Should we be course correcting? Um, kind of to audit themselves, uh, not so much to audit. Uh, that, you know, uh, not so much to audit them as like a congregant looking into a, ch- into a church. Yeah. You know, I, I guess, you know, I mean, I like definitely some of the writings in this area is like, like folks like Eugene Peterson and the unnecessary mm-hmm. pastor, the emotionally healthy church and mo- emotionally healthy leader by Pete Scazzaro. You know, I think he's got some great material out that people can walk through to say, are we being, you know, emotionally healthy? Are we, are we, focusing on that as much as can this person deliver a great sermon? Because as, as you know, like if they're hiring for a pastor, typically the audition is he, he preaches, he or she preaches a time or two, and that's a large piece of it. Yeah. So what are they really valuing 
you know, but not getting into, you know, how is their emotional health, their relational health, their spiritual health. I think there's some great tools that they're on right now on being emotionally healthy, emotionally intelligent would be, you know, a common word put on that today. Because I think often when a pastor does get in trouble, it's, it is that they are not emotionally intelligent in some way. And I mm. think there's, there's different tools in the emotional intelligence that you could use. In, in my book, I talk about um, one of the feedbacks of getting people, you know, that do know you, that are around you to use adjectives um, to define. So you write down the adjectives, how you would define yourself, and then you get your, your maybe wife, close friend, and then you get your staff. To use adjectives, what their interaction is actually kind of surprising for pastors to do that. You know, I worked with one pastor who was very um, pretty rough around the edges, over the top driven and all these things. And, and um, you know, he opened the door for me as a counselor, which, you know, you always love as a counselor to say, hey, what are you seeing? And you want give me some honest feedback. So I told him bluntly the negative sides of his personality approach, just the way he interacted with other people in the group session and myself. And he was blown away. He's like, really? I'm like that. And I'm like, nobody's ever told you. And he's like, no. And I don't know if nobody's told him or he's never. So there is different tools like that, that you can use, you know, if people are open, you know, to hearing, but it has to take the leader has to have some, some guts to say, Hey, staff, what am I like to work with? You know, am I, am I edgy, frustrated, critical, whatever, or do I bring, you know, life to you into the room and to the meeting, you know? Mm-hmm. I, so I think you can find tools to fill in, but it really takes the, the leader being open, humble, vulnerable to, to honest feedback instead of pushing people to follow them along, yeah. you know, saying, Hey, and will I learn from them about how I can, you know, in my personhood, my ability to love well and lead well. And so can I let them give me some honest feedback? Right. I, I, I know we're getting near the end here. I want to ask just one more question on the back of that. And, you know, one of the one of the difficult things is knowing, you know, when someone is receptive to help or when it is just lip service, you know, and I know that there's some who've worked in positions in ministries, myself included, uh, where you have a leader who is abusing their authority and they are, you know, manipulative or they are overstepping their bounds. And it can be difficult because as someone who wants things to succeed and as someone who cares about the work that's being done, making the decision to eject yourself from that situation and step away from that ministry or to take steps to remove that person from ministry. That's a, that's a hard call. Um, you know, at what point do you stop trying to offer critique and stop trying to help change from within and saying, you know, they're not open to it. They're not going to change, you know, and that's a, again, a difficult place to come to, uh, but how do you know when, you know, you're working in vain, I guess, to try to, to correct the system? Yeah, you know, I think you, you know, obviously you, you make your attempt and and ideally you make your attempt going yourself if possible personally to that person saying, hey, 
here's how I'm experiencing you. Here's my concerns. And then if you get the defensive reaction, the blaming you reaction, or, oh, you heard me wrong reaction. Mm. And if there's somebody else who is also experiencing them that way, you go, you know, you try again, you know, but if that persists, you know, and I think everybody has to make that call kind of, okay, do I try it again after that or, or not? To say, you know, this is not changing. And now can I stay healthy in this environment or not? You know, some types of ministries, you can insulate yourself. And I definitely have worked with pastors who are in a situation where like, hey, you know, the lead, let's say, is not healthy. But for the most part, they leave me alone. And I can do my thing. I can still be doing kingdom work. I think I can stay healthy. And there's some like, I can't. I'm being micromanaged. I'm being shamed. I'm being boundaries are being pushed against. And I I say to that person, you know, can you stay healthy and can you, you know, value yourself in that context? And if not, then you do have to look at, do I need to go? Because it's not going to change until that person changes, you know, and sees that there is a problem. Right. Or you get to that point we talked about at the beginning where you're borrowing from yourself and your family and it becomes toxic and you start falling into this trap of potentially mm-hmm. hurting, hurting right. yourself. Exactly. Um, yeah. Look, this was, this was incredibly helpful and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. I definitely encourage anybody who's listening to this episode, grab a copy of don't blow up your ministry by Michael McKenzie. There's a link in the show notes. You can check it out. Um, it's a great resource for pastors, for uh, people working within leadership within churches, or even if you're friends of, of these people to kind of know how to communicate, what to, what to look out for. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to write on an important topic. Oh, thank you very much, Eric. Thank you for having me on today. And I really appreciate what you're, you're working on doing and giving a voice to those who have been abused. You know, it is sad and unfortunate that, that the church has become such a, a toxic place for many. Yet there's also, you know, good pastors and good churches out there as well. And it's, it's yeah. being, you know, aware of which is which sometimes, you know, it's hard to tell up front. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you so much. And um, yeah, definitely this preparing for this episode, I was thinking of a lot of those churches that, you know, I've talked to in the last, you know, last couple of months, good friends who are just struggling because it is, it's a, the, there's, like I said, there's a lot being written about the American church at large and what church culture has become and looks like. And uh, I know it's hard seeing good friends who are struggling to figure out how to survive in that ecosystem. And uh, I think books like yours, topics like this are, are so helpful to them. So thank you again. You're welcome. Good to be here. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.